Welcome to the Immigrations Podcast, where we capture the unique stories of Asian undocumented individuals living in the United States. My name is Ju Hong, and I'm a Korean immigrant activist. Hi, everyone. Uh, today we have Amrit as our guest. Amrit Kaur is a South Asian undocumented queer director, writer, and storyteller from Los Angeles, California. She co-founded a production company called Brown Girl Joy Productions with her siblings, Jazz Core uh, and Amani Core. Amrit's film work has been featured in multiple film festivals, installations, and curated series highlighting migration and LGBTQ plus narratives. Amrit hopes to uplift her communities through her creative and entrepreneurship work. Currently, she's working on her new short uh, film called Sindagi Do Bara, or Life Again, which is a fiction South Asian LGBTQ drama featuring an all BIPOC undocumented LGBTQ plus cast and crew. Wow, I'm excited to learn more about the, your new project. Uh, but first, uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Ju. I appreciate you inviting me um, and just so excited to connect through this. And I'm, I'm so excited for your new podcast series as well. So thank you again for having me. Likewise. And we never met in person, but I believe yeah. we have a lot of mutual friends through yeah. uh, a lot of immigrant rights spaces, for example, Uplift. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, a lot of people uh spoke very highly of you and um i think i mentioned before i listened to your uh podcast with vicky uh amazing uh story oh, thank you yeah, yeah and so i really appreciate you for um participating again uh in my podcast so if you can um tell the audience uh about your immigration journey however you feel comfortable that'd be super helpful yeah, absolutely. Um, I would just, yeah, I would just like to start by, uh, again, thanking you and thanking folks like Vicky, thanking folks in Uplift, thanking folks in Immigrants Rising and all the different uh, mutual spaces that, you know, we could have potentially like met in person before the pandemic. Right. Um, I would just like to thank everyone for, um, you know, in our communities for doing the work they're doing because it's, it's so um, grounding, it's so uplifting, it's so inspiring. Um, and like you mentioned, right, like I do a lot of film work and it is grounded in a lot of these uh, community experiences as well as like collective, um, you know, gratitude and like just collective upliftment of like just our stories, our narratives. And so like you mentioned, y'all, uh, my name is Amit Kaur. I immigrated from Punjab, India uh, in year 2000, I believe, with just my parents and my younger sibling, Jazz Kaur. And uh, since immigrating from India, then uh, we always kind of knew we were in this like weird predicament uh, because we had to actually come uh, from like a state of violence. Like my father's family wanted to actually um, hurt myself and my mom uh, and my younger sister because we were daughters. And at that time in Punjab, India in the 90s, there was a lot of uh, femicides happening um, and like forced abortions and just a lot of forced violence against women for having daughters. And, and that is still such a big problem there right now as well. Um, but unfortunately I have not been able to go back and like, uh, you know, work in that yet. And that is one of my like life goals is to go back home with my mom and uh, be able to open like 
uh, you know, clinics in Punjab and uh, do work in that as well. So we we came because of this issue of violence against women. And um, upon coming to the U.S., literally like a year after we came here, 9-11 happened. And I was too young to really even understand, like, the weight of what 9-11 would mean for me as I was growing up, right? I was, like, about four years old, maybe. And um, it just, it became, like, one of the biggest events of my life because we were already kind of uh, having to, you know, jump through hoops and be very quiet and, and be very scared and nervous for coming to the U.S. and staying here without, like, relatives or any family members or any friends. And then this happens, and my dad is, like, a cashier at a 7-Eleven, and he's, like, working all these, like, odd jobs and, like, working seven days a week. But as I'm growing up in elementary school, you know, on the one hand, for me and my sibling, like, our, you know, classmates, our teachers are just blatantly calling us terrorists, right? And, like, um, yeah, yeah, like, and just verbally abusing us and things like that. Um, And then on the other hand, like, my dad is you know, facing a lot of racism, xenophobia, and violence at work for, you know, being a sick and wearing a turban and, be- you know, having a beard. So it was kind of, it's kind of a rough time. And I think that, like, that really informed, um, you know, me as a person just uh, having these experiences, you know, and growing up and already knowing I was different. I never really had, like, the terminology or language to understand that, like, you know, I am undocumented, but, like, I always knew there was something there because my mom was always like oh you can't go to this place you can't go to your friend's house you can't have the sleepover with this person because so and so's parents already think that your dad looks like Osama bin Laden you know and then like if they start asking questions we're gonna have to reveal what we know and like who we are and so from that I think like in middle school and high school life kind of got even more hectic because I you know realized I was queer and as a queer brown person in the Punjabi Sikh community um there's there was really like no one I had ever known who was like me growing up you know and this was before like social media became a huge thing um you know and before like we we started seeing more art by people of color right and so it was kind of like a tough time and I I think I was always an outcast I was always feeling alone I was always feeling like there has to be more than just this and so because I already felt so different, instead of going like the conventional track of like, you know, liking science, liking history, um, liking English and literature, I just always liked storytelling because I I thirsted to, you know, be able to see Punjab in person one day because my mother would always tell us stories growing up that, you know, we we have to make like a big world for ourselves here in America because, you know, like we went through so much to even come here and just all the amazing, you know, narratives she would weave with just her Punjabi language, uh, you know, for my sisters and I, uh, like, became this, like, really, really important thing for me to share with the world as well. And I'm always amazed because my mother only speaks Punjabi and Hindi, but she taught my sisters and I how to write it, write ABCs. And, like, I learned, I learned English at home in a random way, even though this, like, you know, amazing woman, like, our matriarch didn't, like, know how to speak it herself like she was able to you know we would we would get like cardboard boxes from the dumpsters outside of our apartment because we didn't even know like where the 99 cent store was to go get notebooks because my mom was really scared and so we would just start writing on the cardboard boxes of like you know cutting them up and writing abcs and things like that and so from those kinds of moments you know i i began feeling really 
inspired to just write stories, like just write little like poetry, like little paragraphs, prose, whatever um, in high school. And luckily I ended up being in like this film class that uh, was just an introductory film class that was required for us to graduate. And from that one film class, like I just changed my entire like perspective on what I wanted to do in life. And I just, at that time, like everybody said, it was kind of impossible to be like just a filmmaker because that seems more like a hobby than an actual life career and like life goal thing, you know? And for me, I've always been the person to like challenge people and like to be like that rebellious teen, right? And so when I heard that from people, I was like, oh, you know what? F this, I'm going to do it. And so <laughs> I kind of just got into that field uh, by, you know, taking up different fellowships and like going to different like workshops and events in high school as well as college and from from that here I am now and um, I'm you know making work as an undocumented queer femme yeah that's amazing thanks for sharing and um, I I want to uh, want to kind of talk a little bit about storytelling piece um, and specifically around um, dreamer narrative um, and how uh, just sometimes we in the mainstream media we often uh, share stories around high achieving uh, dreamers um, and in, in, in ways to uh, push for a certain political agenda. And, um, and I'm curious to know your, your thoughts on thoughts on that and how can we um, as a storytellers uh, to be really inclusive around um, this immigration has such a very diverse uh, spectrum of stories and backgrounds and experiences that mm. we, we all go through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for asking that follow-up question. I, I, I really appreciate that question because that's something that, um, you know, I really, really did struggle with myself. When I first got into, you know, community organizing and just working with other folks and organizing as, you know, as an undocumented person in these immigration spaces, right? Like, I kind of, because I was just so young at that time, like 18, 19, um, I think a lot of organizations, nonprofits, and different places kind of just tokenized me, myself, like, um, in different, like, press releases, press conferences, um, different places, and I was kind of like that, you know, that token DACA South Asian person, and so I myself have been part of you know, like when I was younger, just have been part of these campaigns and these narratives of like, oh, these dreamers like need this, they need right. to stay here. We, you know, all this extra stuff. And I think when I was that young, again, I never had like the language to really put it, put it into words, like my own thoughts into words and like explain it to other people. But it always definitely seemed like bothersome to me. Like I, I felt this like itch in my mind where I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't align with like who I feel like I am. Because again, I, I grew up with my parents being the ones to, you know, teach me all these things. But here in this country, like, they don't matter. Like, and, you know, this government is telling us they don't matter and that they don't deserve basic rights like health care and, you know, just different resources, you know, even like rent relief, like food stamps, things like that. And so I, I kind of like went through a lot of, I think, conflicting um, periods in my life when I was younger of being like typecasted as like that dreamer even in like different projects and like different uh you know like when I would try to work with like different film companies you know for an internship or something they would immediately look at like the paperwork and be like oh 
you're a DACA recipient. You're an AB540 student. Ooh, we really need you here because we don't have any of you here. And like, this is, this will be so good for our image and so good for, you know, our company. Like we won't make you the head of this department or we won't make you the head of this project, but you can be like a token person in it. And we'll put your name in the credits. So that way, when we get more funding for being a diverse and, you know, inclusive uh, company or nonprofit, like, you know, you, we can count you in there, right? You could be a headcount person in there. So I think um, from those experiences, I I really learned uh, when I got into filmmaking, like for my own self and with my siblings that like, we, we do have the privilege of, again, being these people that could be seen as dreamers, right? By other folks, especially because we are also South Asian. Um, and a lot of the times, I don't know what it is, but sometimes folks don't believe that there's South Asian folks who are undocumented. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but um, actually I do know what it is, but it's a whole different topic. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, like it's 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 just almost like as if we're like in a unique position where folks want to have us on board for things. And I think like when we started our own production company, we decided like we were not going to make stories that were about like college students with DACA and like folks who... Um, were you know like using their like dreamer narrative to like succeed in life and like have that like hustle culture thing going as well because we were like well that's that's us being privileged as well because like we do have DACA right and that is a big big privilege um but what we wanted to do was like not just show the stories that we see in politics right now and like in the storytelling world like you just mentioned but we wanted to show like what does it look like to have an elderly undocumented person um, mm. who's also LGBT and like have to take care of a younger person that comes in their family when their parents die, right? Like that's what Zindagi Dabada is about. And, um, you know, like we wanted to make stories like that. And we wanted to make stories like our last film, Udara Sapne, Borrowed Dreams. It was about uh, basically like these two sisters, one who's 25 and one who's about 16, having to deal with the fact that their parents are deported to India and the older sister uh, feels really guilty because she was not able to take in her sister as a you know foster care or like adopted uh, child because she she doesn't make enough income and she's undocumented herself. And so the sister ends up in foster care. And it's one of those stories that just has no happy ending, which is like often true for a lot of our community members. Right. And so I believe that the way we can really, really work towards that inclusivity uh, factor is to just be ourselves authentically because oftentimes like the stories that other people who are not undocumented want us to you know show showcase and really express are stories that have an agenda for them but the moment we look inside and write and like we look at our own experiences as undocumented folks um i believe there's so much there from us right and like there's so much there from our community members from our families and so i think like the way to be this inclusive is to be realistic, but also understand like our own privileges, our own positionalities when making this work. Like for myself, um, I know that I have privilege as a South Asian person who, you know, even though I'm undocumented, I, if I was ever like going through, you know, like a DUI checkpoint, I know that I would not be someone who the cops would stop and be like, hey, like, you know, and question unnecessarily because I don't face that right in this country, especially as someone who's not black. and so so there's just things that we're trying to do in our own work that reflect what we believe in. And I think that like oftentimes we don't we're not allowed to do these things for ourselves. So it is something that is challenging, but we do have to continuously do um, 
and like continuously like call out these different toxic um you know organizations and folks when they do want us to tokenize ourselves tokenize our communities for these like dreamer narratives yeah yeah i couldn't agree more and uh when i started organizing for the first time i was definitely a tokenized person oh, who is oh, that a korean undocumented person bring no. it on <laughs> and you know uh just like you, I didn't know how to uh, frame that, uh, but I just felt like um, I was being used. Uh, but yeah. um, at some point, I just really take advantage of this um, cool opportunities to really try to um, share my stories and really reach out to other undocumented folks and connect and share resources. Um, but, you know, I think, I think, um, you know, we are uh, going into the right direction, but, you know, I think there's still a lot of education uh, needs to be involved around yeah. around that aspect. Um, would you be able to share a little bit more about uh, 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 Brown Girl Joy Productions? And uh, I know you mentioned about uh, one of your films, uh, Borrowed Dreams. Yeah, yeah, and you're, um, you know, making a new uh, film uh, very soon. And I'm curious to know um, how the process is going. And and as you are producing uh, short films like this, what are some, um, you know, lessons learned and challenges and opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, first, I just want to affirm, like you saying that being a Korean undocumented person, you've been so tokenized. I had to give you a virtual hug for that because that sucks. <laughs> so bad and yes. i am so so sorry but i'm also so happy that you know in some weird way that like you were able to meet so many other um undocu creatives and undocu folks like you said to share these resources and honestly just build community with you know folks like us um Absolutely. so yeah so that is something that also i i'm also always appreciative of is like even though i've had to do these things and had to be tokenized like there's a lot of good that's also come out of it um but now right. we have to move to this like place of you know more than just tokenization it's like what is right. you know how do we go beyond representation like what what does it actually mean to be inclusive um right. and that's also something that actually segue into brown girl joy productions we're figuring out as well right now um so borrowed dreams without a supplement as we say it in hindi uh was a film that we did in the summer of 2019 and like i mentioned before the plot is there's two sisters parents are deported and they're trying to figure out like how to live and the ending is honestly just, it's a sad ending because uh, we wanted to portray that in a lot of family separation right there. Sometimes it's not happy endings as we see in like these Disney movies, these Hallmark movies. And so um, that's one thing that like speaks a lot to our work in Brown Girl Joy Productions is again, we make realistic films, like films that seem like they're aligned with what experiences our community members and ourselves, like, you know, as undocumented South Asian folks have gone through or have faced. And I think with Udara Sapne, like the, the main thing that I learned was doing the work that we're doing with the topics we're doing that are so, so, so close to not just our hearts, but also to our own existence was really, really difficult. Like, I remember after we actually filmed and we did the production in two days, I believe we had about like four weeks to finish like editing and, you know, post-production before it went to the uh, final premiere, you know, festival. Um, it was, it was a really tough time because 
not only was I acting in it with my younger sister, Amani, we ended up being the two folks to edit that film as well, because we didn't have funding like to hire editors and like, you know, have like a whole crew for post-production. And so we ended up not only feeling really traumatized by having to act as two folks who, you know, who had parents deported, but also folks who had to literally keep, you know, rewatching that footage and keep like editing to make the sequence. And um, I think the, the worst part of that experience was that we knew we needed to make this film though, right? Like even though we were feeling really, really uh, traumatized and feeling really emotional about it, we knew that this work needed to be out in the world because we were tired of seeing folks who were not undocumented making projects, right? Like that would go on Netflix, that would go on YouTube, that would go on different platforms, right? Um, about our communities, but who were not from our communities. And so we knew that there was a sense of urgency. And um, what I really learned from this film is like, when you work with folks who are from the communities that you know you're trying to show social impact for and social issues for right like when you show this work that has impacted people in it directly like you have to be really conscious of that and you have to move really really carefully and you have to you have to come into the project with like mindfulness and preparation for the emotional baggage that can come from doing projects like this and from the like just I think like mental challenges that, that come from it. And so like for us, after that film, um, we honestly like, we probably needed therapy, but you know, we had no healthcare. <laughs> so we ended up just like, you know, talking amongst ourselves of like, damn, that was a rough process. And so like a good six months after we had that film, you know, it was, it was, it was a success. It went to this great, great film festival. Um, we I could not watch that film for six months because it was just mm. so heavy. And um, and from that process, like I said, now that we're doing our second short film, Zindagi Dabara, Life Again, we actually, uh, we, we prepared heavily for it because before we didn't have the resources and it was really, really brushed and, and like no funding from anywhere. Like I didn't know anything about crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, like, you know, I had no idea about like distribution. It was kind of just like a trial and error thing. Like, we were just like, oh, F it, let's just do it. You know, like, we'll see what happens. And so we did it, you know, and it honestly like on I want to say for my part it was a really really great failure like it was a failure that made this movie that we're doing now happen like we mm. would have not, never been in the position to be making Zindagi Dabara now if Odara Sapne hadn't happened and you know like how you see those memes of like oh xyz like walked so you could run or you know like someone did this so that you could be running so I feel like we made Odara Sapne in the time we made it like walking and now we're making Zindagi Dabara while running because like Zindagi Dwara has been like a great success where we started uh, production, sorry, post, oh, not post-production. We started pre-production as well as like coming up with crowdfunding uh, techniques like in last September. And from there, like we were really successful in October because we started our crowdfunding campaign and we, within four weeks, reached our fundraising goal. And it was really, wow. really amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, was, yeah, thank you. Was, I think we had about... 13,500 and so that wow. yeah and so we were able, able to reach it and we made um we made some great connections we have some amazing folks on this project from the South Asian community as well as like uh other queer trans folks who um are really really invested in the story and we're working with a lot of other undocumented creatives as well and having a lot of I think key collaborators who are impacted with the story, like I mentioned, has made this project so special because it's 
now just on my project, it's not just like me who wrote it and is going to direct it in March. It's like, it's this community project now. It's like this project that so many folks are rooting for and so many folks know will like have an impact. And I would just like to say, lastly, um, with Udada Sapne, what we ended up doing is, I'm not sure if you know Ju, but like what a lot of, uh, oh, no, you do, you made a film too, I'm so sorry. Um, what a lot of folks do with uh, when they're in film is like they just, they usually like will make a short film and do like a film festival circuit, right? Like they'll just like submit it to a lot of film festivals and um, and that'll be it, right? But like, and again, I'm so sorry that I was like, oh, if you don't know, because um, you do know, you're doing this too. So like what we did with the Baris Apne is what, uh, similarly what you did with Halmoni, which is we took it to a lot of universities, we took it to a lot of nonprofits, and we did um, we did like special film screenings with a Q&A section in the end, as well as also um, providing it uh, as a free resource online for different LGBTQ plus organizations that wanted to show South Asian LGBTQ plus issues and migration issues as well. And so from that film, like I think we didn't make, we honestly didn't make any money off of that film. Like I didn't want to sell it. We got a, a couple of offers to sell it to streaming services, but for some reason in my heart, I was like, I don't think this movie, um, you know, should be like for rent or, you know, like for like some a price, like people should be able to view it for free. And it wasn't, it was never meant to be a project that I, we profited from. It was just a project we wanted to make and have it in the world. So that's kind of what happened. And what we're thinking for Zindagi Dabata now is to also have like a film festival circuit, but then also come up with like an impact campaign uh, to make it very intentional and like to have mm -hmm. a really, really strong, I think like intentions-based distribution cycle. Yeah. Wow. And when cool. this film will be released? Okay, so we're filming it in March. It's filming March 18th through the 20th. And then it's going to actually have a premiere in, I think, September or October at the Tasveer Film Festival. So, yeah, I'll, I'll totally send you an invite. And, um, yeah, it's going to be cool. I would love that. I yeah, would love yeah. that. That would be amazing. Yeah. And how, how uh, the distribution will happen in the midst of pandemic? Will it be in person or will it be virtual? So we're still uh, figuring that out because yeah, like some some festivals have started going hybrid, right? Like there's some in person, and then there'll be some like online events. So we would like to do at least, I would say, if we're gonna do stuff this year in 2022, it'll be virtual for sure because of like you know COVID. Uh, but next year for 2023, a lot of it would be in person. Um, so yeah, so I'm hoping that like we get a larger campaign going for the fall for that festival because it, it it might be virtual and I would love for more people to be able to see it instead of like having to go to the, you know, different locations and things like that. So yeah. Wow, I'm so excited. It's a big year for you. Yeah, it really is. Thank you. Thank <laughs> That's you. amazing. And as you're telling your story uh, and, and uh, your production, um, you know, what resonated with me is that uh, this um, this exposing trauma um, as you're sharing your story um, like to the public, but also um, sense of urgency to really share your own narrative and claim your own story instead of other people sharing your story on behalf. And so there's like trying to fight for that piece, but also as you continue to share your story, whether through film or different uh, medium, Sometimes it's just like, it's too much. I can't even sometimes watch my own film because it's so um, 
you know, I cry all the time and it's like yeah. reopening my own trauma and, uh, and it's really sometimes get burned out. And I'm curious to know how you deal with that and whether you are just uh, pushing it through or do you have other ways to create ways to continue to do the work that you're doing um, while acknowledging um, just exposing the trauma as you're sharing your story. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. I just, you know, I want to take a moment to say like, I watched your film for the first time, uh, last month in January, um, at UC Santa Cruz when you did the special film screening, right? With the CRES department. Um, and I, I myself teared up, honestly, like, and everyone that was at the event teared up because we, I think a lot of the folks who came were uh, people of color from different, you know, I think there was a lot of first gen students, there's a lot of docu students who came and I think we all felt this like, just this like, I think heaviness in us because it, it just resonated with so many of us and I think that your story is just so powerful, but I also see, yeah, like it's very heavy. And I can even just watching you on, on screen and how money I could tell that you were, you were just going through it and you're still going through it. And I think that that's sort of like how I feel at this moment because um, with Zindagi Dabata, that film, the inspiration for the film actually came from my grandmother passing in 2018 from ovarian mm. cancer in Punjab, India. And I was really heartbroken when she passed because I actually like was never able to see her again. And I was never ever able to like come out to her as a queer person. And my grandmother was someone that I really, really like was close to, even though we didn't talk often. And the reason we didn't talk often was because my parents could not afford you know like when we were younger I don't know if you remember June but we'd have calling cards um instead of like you know the whatever like wireless like you know like uh, international calling we have now right like we'd have those little like cards that you get from the liquor store or whatever yes. right and you pay like two bucks to like five bucks for the minutes so we we would have to use those cards to call my nanny my grandmother and um and so I, so we weren't able to talk to her as much because my parents didn't have a lot of money to keep getting the little calling cards, which were really expensive if you think about it now. Um, and so I was close with her, but like she never, she never was able to find out that, um, you know, I'm different. Um, but she would always, even even if she, like she never said it in words, every time I talked to her on the phone, I could just. I could just feel this sense of acceptance and she was a, a way nicer to me than my mom was here in the U.S. Um, and so I just always felt this like closeness with her. But I think when she passed, I, I felt really heartbroken and I felt really, really just, again, this sense of urgency of like, I need to make this story. And the reason I made Zindagi Dabata or the, the reason I wrote it, sorry, is because I was thinking like, what about like, if there's, you know, two Punjabi South Asian uh, family members in a whole different universe where like one of them is able to come out to the other one and they have like an intergenerational difference, you know, and like and they have all these different age gaps and all these different like viewpoints. Right. Um, and so Zendigi Dabara is about a you know older relative who has to take in a younger uh, person, a younger teenage, a teenager that is their relative when the parents die. 
And so it's kind of like showing the the differences between the two and how they would be, you know, like moving on and like having some sort of life again while the parents are gone and like how do they deal with that as well as like one of them finding out the other person's LGBTQ plus identity and so I think for me like Zindagi Dwada was that piece of like trying to make peace with the fact that she passed and I could never tell her and I think that this is my way of honoring her um and hopefully like you know this project in some way in the universe gets you know transferred to her and she's able to see it um you know and so sorry going from that I would just like to say like I don't really have like oh like any rituals or any kind of like you know um practices right now that have to do with self-care or like you know healing and like mental health with my work I think I do understand better now that I do have to do those things but I still don't have the resources right like to to be doing those things and so I think the way that I I take care of myself is I I try to surround myself with my loved ones right like the family that I do have here that I'm not separated from right and like my um and like some of my really really close friends my partner like I really love to spend time with people I love to really like make little crafty gifts for people and I think I find happiness in those kinds of things and I think that those things really always prove to me that you know there is always hope if there's people out there who are willing to you know, just just to show love and spread love. Um, and as cheesy as that sounds, I really do believe, like, you know, even though we're all going through um, so many different battles and we're going through so many different things, like, and even if my film work is heavy, I do believe that, like, with the right people, with the right communities, um, there can be hope and there can be, like, healing as well. And so I hope that Zimbabwe is about it for me. Sorry, like, just to <laughs> end this little tangent. I hope that this film is healing though because again like it comes from this place of wanting to share something with my grandmother my nanny who passed so yeah that's beautiful thanks for sharing i wonder was it what is it like to being queer and undocumented in within this south asian communities oh Oh, that's a big one. Jew, we're gonna have to do a whole other podcast episode. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. You wanna talk about that? Let's talk about that. I'm just kidding. Um oh my gosh. Uh so it's it's pretty difficult, honestly. Um like so in there is there's a lot of communities in South Asia, right? There's a lot of countries, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different languages. So from, I'm going to speak particularly from where I come from, which is the state of Punjab in India. And okay. um, a lot of Punjabi people, if you've met, uh, if you've met Punjabi people, a lot of us are Sikh, right? Like Sikhism. So in my religion, in my culture, um, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, openness to individuality and like people being different, right? Like our religion has nothing, there is nothing in our religion that says that like someone cannot be queer, someone cannot be trans, someone cannot be basically anything they want to be, right, as a person. But in our like communities, in our Punjabi communities, there is a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of transphobia, there's also a lot of sexism, uh, you know, there's a lot of different, different issues that go on. There's a lot of ageism as well, like where the elders are always like, you know, we need to respect this, but you know, we, we don't have to respect you if we don't want to and things like that, you know, I, I'm sure you could also relate to that as a lot of API communities are like that with the elders. Um, so I think um, 
it's been a it's been a difficult process because even now I'm not really out to my Sikh community. Even though I'm always out here, like you know, making all this work, it's never been like my intention to to be open with them because I don't feel very safe yet. Like many queer um, Punjabi folks and South Asian folks, you know. Um, and so it's it's been like really confusing because I'm I'm still trying to figure out like how I can you know, be true to myself and then also be of service to my community um, in a way that doesn't, you know, hide one part of myself just to appease other people, right? And so I think like now I'm doing a lot better with it as I'm getting older because I've met other folks in organizations like Satrang SoCal, which is a, it's the only like volunteer-led LGBTQ plus South Asian organization in SoCal where, you know, I grew up. And so when I, you know, first joined uh, Satrang, it was like five or six years ago, and I started meeting just South Asian folks, dude, of like all different backgrounds um, and so many different ages and like career paths and everything who were LGBTQ plus. And I think that started giving me hope. But growing up, it was the worst. It was the worst. I could not. I was like that emo kid with like no friends, no like you know support from anybody, and I was just always angry, you know. And I think now. The child in me is still sometimes so angry with people, but the older I get, the more like I'm able to become more at peace with knowing that there will always be people in my community who won't accept me and who will like, you know, just have a lot to say about me, but that's okay because I'm okay with myself now. Um, And I just hope that like, even with my work that other Punjabi and South Asian folks who are queer and um, undocumented are able to see like, it's, it's okay. Like not like, the whole world is not going to like you, right? Like there will always be people who don't. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Wow. That's definitely another whole podcast that we have to break down. <laughs> it's a very, very heavy topic and very complicated. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and uh, but appreciate you for uh, sh- uh, sharing your piece. Yeah. Thank you. I think you should definitely do like an undocu a queer one, like with multiple folks. I would love it. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be amazing. That'll be amazing. Yeah. Maybe I'll follow with you on that. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. And I know that you're in grad school at UC Santa Cruz. And I think that's also how we uh, met uh, virtually. And I'm curious to know um, your experience like um, as an undocumented graduate student at UC System, um, whether uh, UC System has been um, supportive or there's some improvements around within the UC system uh, to help undocumented communities. If you could uh, help help us uh, understand what, what is happening in the UC system. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Is this, oh. is this another, is another, another episode? Another episode. And I know you, you went to a UC as well, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. you did. I went okay. to, yeah, I went to Laney Community College. Um, yeah. So I went, I got into UC Davis and UC Irvine and a few other uh, UCs and CSUs. Um, but, you know, for many reasons, one of the main factors because of financial uh, mm. uh, issues, I went to community college route first, and then I transferred to UC Berkeley afterwards. Yeah, I recall. Yeah, I recall you saying that on something I've seen. Yeah. So you're well aware <laughs> of um, issues. So as um so yeah, as you just said, yeah, I just started my program uh, last September. So it's it's I'm in my first year. Um, my program is 
It's an MFA program in social documentation. And what that just means, it's a fancy way of saying documentary filmmaking. And um, I would say that uh, my experience in the UC, in all honesty, has not been great. Like mm. I, I had to go through a lot of hoops in last summer. Like I started already immediately as, you know, someone who already did undergrad, I knew that there would be a lot of paperwork I had to fill out, um, a lot of like, you know, I think exemption forms, things like that to uh, get approved for my AB 540 financial aid with within the UC system. And so I had started doing that ever since I accepted my offer to go to UC Santa Cruz, which by the way, so for my program, if anybody listening to this is in film, it is a fully funded program. So UC Santa Cruz Social Documentation MFA is fully funded. It's a two-year program. I was really excited because I was like, oh, like I won't, I won't have to, um, you know, figure out how to raise funds to go to like a grad program. Like a lot of my friends have had to do like start GoFundMe's, right? As we see like all the time. So I was excited. Um, and I started doing the process of like filing paperwork last summer, like around June and school wasn't even starting till end of September. I think it was like September 27th. And I started talking to the, like the UC, I think office of the registrar, and like the financial aid office, as well as like my own department head and just trying to figure out like how to kind of get all these like different departments to coordinate their paperwork and like kind of uh, cross-examine things just so that they have it on the same page. Like as I'm sure you know, like in the UC system, their offices just don't communicate and like they just sort of keep mm -hmm. paperwork and like they don't really help you much in terms of like getting connected with another department. You kind of have to go and fend for yourself and like go talk to all of them. So that's what I kept doing all of last summer. And I think like by August, they had told me uh, the office of the registrar was like, oh yeah, you're good to go. You know, like you, you have all your paperwork in, we've approved your AB 540 status um, and you have an exemption. So you won't be counted as an international student. You know, you'll be counted as a, like a California resident for your funding to come through to your account. Long story short, um, I actually ended up starting school and not getting any of my fellowship money, my financial aid, my PA stipend for half of the quarter. Like, oh my goodness. I didn't get any funding, any financial aid until, so it started September 23rd and everyone in my cohort had already gotten it. Like, I think about a week before that, I didn't get it until after my birthday in October. And it was like about wow. like five to six weeks later. And you know how quarter system is, right? It's like only, I think like eight weeks, maybe like eight, nine weeks. And so that was like a really, really bad experience. And I would say from there, it's been a little bit more smooth sailing now because it's, you know, only been like about three to four months from there. Um, but I, I really feel like, you know, they just, dis they disappointed me and a lot, and I'm sure there's so many other undocumented students who have to jump through, through these hoops. And I can't even imagine someone younger than me who is an undergrad, like barely like 18, you know, 19, trying to go through this process and getting so frustrated with these UC, you know, uh, schools. Like the biggest issue, I think, is that they don't, they don't advocate for you. Like they don't reach out to you to be like, hey, right. by the way, like, you know, you have, we noticed that you submitted paperwork to be a DACA slash AB 540 student but we need this from you, right? Like they don't do that. They just, they take your paperwork. They're like, okay, it's submitted. And then you go to your portal and maybe if you're missing something, it'll show us like a to-do, but they, there won't be any like sense of urgency. And they don't, I feel like they just need to do better with like, you know, looking out for us and like, and like at least even just 
sending us notifications, like sending us different things. And like, I know that a lot of these UCs don't like to do like quote unquote handholding, right? Like they don't, they don't do that for even regular students who are not, you know, documented in AB 540. So I never expect that from them, but I do expect them to at least show the same amount of urgency as they do with other students to us. Um, and I think like, it was great that we have a, you know, undocumented services uh, center on campus at UC Santa Cruz, but even they like, they do a lot of events throughout the quarter and things like that, but they're still not the financial aid office, right? Like they're not the people who are gonna give me my money. And so I think that the schools need to have a lot more just resources put to just figuring out financial aid for students. Cause that's always the, I've noticed when I've talked to my other friends who go to the UC systems for a school, you know, grad school or undergrad is like, that's the biggest thing is the financial aid. Like just not being able to even get the funds that they were promised. And mm. so, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that uh, that you have to go through, uh, but I'm glad that you uh, received uh, the fellowship, all the funding that yeah. you need to finish the program. Um, and I'm also hearing um, around how you've been doing so much great work for the community, and um, obviously, uh, filmmaking is your passion and uh, continue to do the work uh, for the community. And I also know that uh, you're the oldest one uh in your family and really supporting your family and like how do you do that how do you juggling both uh supporting your family while uh you're in grad school and doing films and do you even have your time for yourself to to <laughs> uh <laughs> for your personal life and i'm just curious how do you juggle with that and what keeps you going i'm gonna tell you the funniest thing i got it from my dad okay it's a the thing I do is what my dad used to do when we were younger, which is I do like a buy one, get one free thing. Where <laughs> If I'm doing film, I just involve my siblings. Like I just throw them on board. And so that way I'm doing two things at once of like hanging out with them, having quality time and then, you know, building their skill sets and skill sharing and doing film work. So wow, that's I amazing. That. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm just <laughs> like, I'm joking when I say this, but that's why like we started a production company together so that we are just always, you know, together instead of like all over the place. Um, yeah, that's, thank you for asking that. It's, you know, it's definitely difficult because, you know, we're living in this like huge hustle culture, right, right now, like, of, right. you know, as, I mean, we've always had to do this as Andaki folk. So have our parents and, you know, other community members of like hustle, 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 and like, go, go, go. So I am, I am also like that. Like I, I have a lot going on all the time uh, with school, with, you know, different film gigs, with, you know, uh, whatever else, like family stuff, my personal life. But I think um, the way like I, I manage it all is I just, I, I tell myself to be really, really intentional with my time. So instead of like, you know, spending my time somewhere, I think of it as like investing my time. And so when I invest my time, right, like in the things that I really, really care about, it ends up just serving me better like it helps me you know like that's and that's what I mean with the whole buy one get one free thing of like I like to do stuff with my family right and film is like my biggest passion storytelling is my biggest passion so we all just do it together because they are they're also very similar and like they want to do some creative work and so um so that's kind of how I manage it and then with my personal life my partner actually is also a creative um and they're actually in their own grad school program right now which is also an MFA and so 
because of that, we both understand like, you know, we're, we're going to be like working all the time and busy. Um, but we, but we also help each other out on our projects. And so like, he's always our music composer and he's always like our acting coach on my projects and stuff. So I get free labor. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know, I get to also spend time with him. And so that's kind of how I do it. And then with my grad program, um, luckily right now it's not as busy because we're having more like introductory courses in the first you know year and then over summer what we do is we actually have to go out and film our thesis so I will be really really busy over summertime but then like it'll wind back down in fall and winter quarter and things like that so there's always periods in the year where things go slower things go faster and so I just kind of you know plan things around that that's amazing thank you thank you so one final question for you uh, what would you give advice to your younger self and why? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, I think I would, I would tell my younger self to, to slow down and to breathe. Uh, Cause you know, things are going to end up okay. I think I was always rushed as a child. I was always so stressed. Um, because DACA actually became a thing when I was, I think like in, um, I was in 10th grade, I believe, like it, it, it actually became a thing. But before that, as a younger child, like as a teen, I was always like worried about my documentation status as well as like my family. And uh, I didn't mention this on the podcast yet, but my dad is like, he used to be the sole provider for our family of seven. And um, before I like started working and my younger siblings, right? Like and so it's always been like my dad and I like being the folks who, you know, get things done for our family and like, you know, he'd always be the one working, but I'd always be the one taking care of my younger siblings, my uh, my younger four siblings who, you know, would need doctor's appointments, who would need parent conference, like, you know, things like that. And so I was always rushing and rushing and rushing. And I think I just never took the moment to just experience being a child and experience like the little things. And so I would tell myself to just slow down um even though things would be hectic still like just that it, it'll be okay you know and just knowing that life isn't always going to be this uncertain it does get better as we get older so yeah that, that's what i would say great thank you thanks for uh sharing your advice and your wisdom and Amrin, i really appreciate you for joining the podcast and we're i'm really excited about uh your uh, film that is coming up. It's a, it seems like a big year for you. And so um, I would love to support you best way I can. So um, again, uh, there's so many topics that we need to talk about. Yes. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think Vicky also mentioned that too. So maybe perhaps we all continue to have the conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. Your work is so important to you. So I'd really love to support you too in the future. Like I mentioned, let's do a video project. Let's get this going, yes. you know, let's do something. So yeah, thank you. Yes. So please uh, stay in touch and uh, we'll touch again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow me on Instagram at Immigrations. See you at the next episode.